everybody, this is R. Purcell. This is November 27th. This is the end of the pre-light day for the alternate, if you can believe it. It's amazing. We're making this movie. We just uh, did a bunch of rigging at our two main locations and prep cameras, and I did rehearsals, and yeah, it was just a really magical, amazing day. A really, really long day. I think like maybe 18 hours or so, <laughs> maybe 16, I don't know. But yeah, really long, but really great. And uh yeah, I want to first off apologize to everybody for missing two weeks of uh, podcast episodes. It's just been so crazy prepping for this movie. I just have not had time to get these episodes out. And we're trying to release an episode with the filmmakers from uh, Greener Grass, which is a really cool movie I can't wait to watch. But um, yeah, it uh, it just is not done it being edited yet just due to various reasons. So that will come out soon. That's not this episode today. This is a throwback episode. We recorded this way back in April of this year. Uh, this is an episode I did with uh, L. Jeffrey Moore, uh, one of our w- wonderful co-hosts, who actually I just cast in the alternate this week as a, a really cool role. So, yeah, look out for Jeff in that. Um, it's really, really going to be really fun. I can't wait to shoot it. But um, anyway, so we did this way back in April. This is with Bruce Bruce Natchen. 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 Uh, I think that's how you say it. He's a filmmaker out of Los Angeles. Um, he's an actor. And also, he's been making these short films for the last few years. He made... The thing that's really interesting about Bruce is that he's an actor first who went into directing out of necessity to create his own work and then just kind of like got a knack for it, liked it, and kept doing it. And he's made a lot of like, you know, action movies and even a superhero series. So he's made two of these these shorts, um, you know, about this superhero villain. And they're kind of like superhero dramas i guess but they do have effects and they do have all the superhero stuff that you want so they're pretty cool uh you can check those out um you know we'll have those in the show notes but uh but yeah it was a really fun chat with bruce we talked about his process why he makes short films how he makes his short films um you know and what he's aiming to get out of the experience and it was just a really fun talk uh i think bruce forgot maybe that he was on the show or something i haven't heard from him in a while or maybe he thought we forgot about him but no bruce we remembered it's just been on the back burner um but i'm so excited to share this episode with you guys today um we're gonna be releasing two episodes this week to make up for the ones that we lost so it'll be um two uh probably released i guess now on thanksgiving um back to back and uh this is the first one so uh please enjoy i believe this is episode 232 with bruce natchin acting to direct action is what i called it don't know if that's uh accurate but i think i'm gonna go with it uh you guys are gonna excuse me later <laughs> for my bad titling um uh, but yeah i also want to give just a quick shout out to our new editor jason sharnak who edited this episode and a couple others including the alex ferrari episode that will be hitting very soon um and the jennifer reader episode that's going to come out on monday december 2nd the first day of production for the alternate so thanks jason for coming in and helping us out um to get these episodes pre-edited so i don't have to worry about it while we're shooting the film and yeah, I hope you guys uh, dig this uh, episode. All right. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm L. Jeffrey Moore. 
And I'm Mark Purcell. This week, we are excited to welcome director, actor Bruce Nashen to the show. Did I pronounce your name right, Bruce? So close. You were so close. Oh, I should have but asked. How do I pronounce it? Like Jackson with an N. Jackson. Naxon. There you go. There we go. All right. Wow. Naxon. That's cool. Naxon. I like that. So, Bruce, you yes. are an L.A.-based actor and filmmaker with multiple short films under your belt with a focus in action and VFX. So uh, why don't you hit us off with the bio? Tell us all about you. Well, um, I started out by uh, falling into computers, which made me want to kill myself. And I needed to find something that was more satisfying. So um, back east, I fell into acting mostly because I thought it would help me get over being shy. And I met some really lovely people, some of which were incredibly talented and wonderful. And none of them were going anywhere because they weren't willing to risk trying anything, I said, you know what? That looks difficult. I'm going to do that. So I got my union status, discovered that despite the fact Philadelphia being so union, you can't walk down the street without getting kneecapped by a teamster. They don't have union productions. Moved out west where I proceeded to fall into computers and nothing happened for quite some time until I realized that if if I don't do it myself... It's never going to happen. I will never, ever get anywhere. And so I started with a very, very small project. I I wanted to figure out how to produce things. I didn't know anything about anything. So I did a simple, small, little 10-episode multi-camera sitcom with a cast of 20 people and a crew of 40. And that was my first step into... Oh, that's small to you? A crew of 40 and 10-episode sitcom? That's that's pretty big, (laughs) Wow. I'm ambitious. I'm not smart. But why a sitcom of all things? Well, at the time, um, it was about seven, eight years ago. And if I was going to put in a bunch of effort, well, first off, I had a manager and she wanted me either to do stand up or to do some kind of web series. And since the world of stand up seemed to me bleak, sad, and probably a direct <laughs> path to suicide. Wow. <laughs> I, I figured a web series is probably not going to make me want to die. So... And I wanted to learn how to produce things. So I didn't know any different. It seemed like if I was going to do something, it would be better instead of doing something dramatic. And at the time, I wasn't thinking about stunts or action or anything like that. Um, what's my selling point? I'm funny. I, um, I fall into two categories. I'm either incredibly threatening or I'm the lovable loser. That seemed to be something that would translate. People would like the lovable loser more. It would translate into commercial. So 10 episode sitcom. It was insane. But got it done. And then, so that was, it's called Under the Doghouse. You can find it online. I look younger there because I was younger. So. Is it out for people to see in the world or? Yeah. um, If you search for Under the Doghouse, you should pull it right up on YouTube. Oh, nice. The the funny thing, the sad thing, and it's funny and sad in the same way, mostly sad, totally sad, not funny at all, is I had gotten thousands of views per episode originally. But a few years ago, I had a marketing person. They were like, you know what? Delete the channel. We're going to start it fresh. Did that. No views. So now it's all under my one channel. Oh, man. and That's rough. What year was this, actually? It was I, – I released it in 2012. Okay. So this was probably like right along the times that, you know, when everybody was saying, oh, we can only do this and can you, you, or you can only do that. Like you were that anomaly – uh, which I actually started to get drawn to you because, oh, here's another actor-director who I'm just going to assume 
was it going to play by the rules? Was it going to say, oh, hey, well, so-and-so said the only way to achieve success is to be one or the other, you know? So most, I found that most, I don't like, I hope I don't alienate casting and whoever like production people, but generally speaking, my experience has been people will try to put you in a small little box and they won't see you beyond that. And if you're somebody like me, whom, you know, I'm a little um, rounder than I should be. So I look kind of like I would be the neighbor character, but I can punch you in your heart nuts all the time while making you laugh. I can be dramatic. I can do all these different things. I'm a lead, even though I'm in a character body, I'm a character lead. I'm along the lines of a Seth Rogen, a Jonah Hill, a John Favreau, and I can do th these things exceptionally well. People don't see you that way. So it falls to you to define yourself. Because if you don't, then um, who are you? Casting doesn't know, so they don't use you because there's somebody who looks more like the part. If you have something to show them, that'll define who you are to them, and they will start seeing you in that direction. Yep. My experience. No, no, yeah. I, I actually uh, feel the same way. There have been plenty of times when I've submitted myself uh, to pieces that didn't call for, you know, for, in my case, um, a tall African-American, you know, male, uh, you know, as long as I didn't see, oh, well, this particular role is type specific, I would just send in my info. And sure enough, I would get called in, you know. So, yeah, m my hat's off to you because not a lot of people, I'm just going to say probably not a lot of actors uh, have the wherewithal to see that you can actually define who you are instead of having others define, you know, have them like define you or market you, which, you know, which we should all say, hey, there is a real aspect to that um, because, you know, it's the business of show. So everybody's got to fit in a little box, but sometimes that doesn't happen. And because of the Internet and podcasting, we're seeing lots of varieties. So, you know, that's cool. I have a question for you. Um, yeah, what's up? Do you have, do you, <laughs> do you do your own productions as well? I like to collaborate with other people. I have done uh, short films by myself, but now that I'm knowing a, a lot of other filmmakers, I'm actually able to get more help. So I'm either producing something or acting or I'm directing something and I'm acting. I, I try and... I, I, if anything, I'm doing one or two things. I try not to do all the things because my attention span is not that big to begin with. But by and large, you know, as long as I know that I'm making a, a project, you know, I kind of have a sense of where I fit in that particular story. So let me ask you another thing. Yeah. Do you find that since you began doing your own projects or taking on, shall we say, um, production side roles, that when you just go out for parts where you're just going out as an actor, that you still view it from the production side? I do, actually. I, and, I, and I think that actually helps the production because usually, like, if I get cast into something, I kind of know, okay, well, of course... Every you know person in production knows hurry up and wait mode. But then at the same time, once you're once you're going and once you're shooting, you know exactly. For me, I I can tell. Okay, well this take didn't really work for me. 
and I can kind of like see it, you know, like from, you know, behind the camera, where I'm looking at the director or whatever. And so I just kind of like I create a really quick shorthand with the director or the cinematographer and I just immediately do it again or I tweak something that next go round. So it actually I think it's it's a benefit more than a, a hindrance. Oh, I definitely think it's a benefit on Lunchtime is Over. My producing partner is a guy named Gilbert. Feliciano and um, Gilbert, great guy. And it, it was sort of a chance for him to, to, to actually, it's like, I want to produce things. I'm not quite sure work with, you know, we're working together to do this. Um, and one of the things that I've always believed and I was talking to him about, and I talked to anyone about it is that I don't view myself as an actor's actor. You'll hear actors talk about that. I view myself as a producer's actor because all the stuff that goes into acting, understanding the character, the emotion, the feeling, where you are in the story, all that stuff, that's the homework. That's not the job. The job is somebody sticking a tripod in your crotch. You can't move. There's a camera th- six inches from your face. There's putting enough light to illuminate from the stars directly six inches from you. Now, do your homework while all this is going on. And that's the job. The job is to be able to deal with those circumstances, to, to know that, okay, I'm in a close-up, so I can't move. I've got to show all these things, um, and I need to just have enough of a motion to match it up with the medium where I moved a little bit, which needs to match up to the wide, where I actually moved in this direction quite a lot. That's the job, doing being able to take all that acting stuff, um, bring it in while you're doing all this precise technical thing. I need to stop three steps in lining up my body to this piece of furniture because that's where my mark is. This is a lot of technical stuff on top of all the creative stuff. And that's what I've having the understanding that this is all the important stuff. So all that acting, bringing out the truth of the world, delving into the meat of the character, that happens before set. You, that, that's not the job. That's what you need to come in with. The job is being able to take all of that and presenting it at the drop of a hat while these 50 different things are going on and not yeah. thinking a big deal of it. But you also have to be able to, you know, adjust that character and everything on set in the moment because maybe the yeah. work that you've done beforehand doesn't match up with what the director's thinking or what's working with the other actors or, you know, there's lots of pivoting that goes on. So, yeah, I mean... I do really appreciate when actors have the ability to, you know, know where the frame is, you know, and be in the frame and be aware of those things and then not get annoyed when you remind them, like, you have to stay on your mark or we're not going to get the shot, you know, because, I mean, it can be frustrating sometimes, you know, and I totally understand that. But I think the more the actors know about these things and are, are prepared, the better it goes, you know. And that's one of the neat things about doing your own productions, especially when the money's coming out of your pocket. There's a certain amount of pressure and stress to get these things done. And one of the things I believe casting is really concerned with is not just can you act, but can you be in this pressure situation and perform and deliver what needs to be delivered very much like you want to be sure that your cinematographer can frame up the shots in a way that's going to like tell the story, give it a unique edge and make it beautiful and ideally not make it blurry. So, (laughs) right. (laughs) So it's sort of like when you mentioned about being flexible, of course you have to be flexible. Um, Having an understanding of the story doesn't mean you can give me direction all day long and I will give you what you need when you need it. I'm ready to do that. It's just, it helps that 
on something like Dark Spectre 2, where on fight day, I paid for fight day. That like, and I, it's not that I had a lot of money for it. I paid for fight day, which meant that I needed to perform and I needed to go and I needed to do all this physical stuff. And I wasn't a trained stunt person. We had numerous times with the stunt coordinator, but I wasn't a trained stunt performer. Mark wasn't a trained stunt performer, but we had to be ready to go and adapt and move forward and deliver what needed to be delivered. And if we didn't, I would be out $10,000. Yeah. Wow. Well, here, wait, like we got to back up here for a second. We kind of jump way right into things. And I want to get back and talk about the fight days and you're you're doing your stunts and and all that stuff. But before we get there, you mentioned that you were doing work in computers. So was that like your day job that you did for many years, like working in computers? Yeah. So um, when I moved out here, I landed a job with this foo-foo-y kind of company that um, I hated it. It set me up for a long time to be able to survive out here. So that was good. It taught me a great lesson in how to ask for what I'm worth because I worked for this company and they were having me bill 75 to $85 an hour. And I learned under them how to ask for that kind of money. When I went out on my own, I knew how to ask for that kind of money. And one of the keys to getting paid more than a small amount of money is being able to look someone in the eye and go, I was here for three hours. That's $300. Um, and not flinch yeah. when they're like, cause most people, when you do something like that, they're sort of like, Oh, well, here's a check. You'd th- a lot more than you'd think. You'd think some people would be like, Oh my God, that much money. It's a very valuable lesson. And it also put me in pressure situations where, um, one of my clients was, um, LAX and I've been in situations where if a system was down millions of dollars a minute were being lost. And until I fixed that situation, million dollars, several million dollars an hour were being lost. So that's that was a lesson in performing under pressure, which is very useful because yeah, bring me to your set. Let's see, like it, like let's see if these pressures will get to me. They're not going to because it's nothing compared to having millions of dollars of commerce resting yeah. on you getting to the bottom of something. So were you doing IT work or was it more like computer engineering? Like what kind of stuff were you doing with it was, computers? I, it was networking. It was computer okay. repair. It was that sort of thing. It okay. wasn't the highest of high level, but it was, um, it was right. you know, senior technician stuff. So do you do all your visual effects? No. Um, no. Okay. So, cause I was wondering if that's part of it is that you've been working with computers for so many years that you just had like an affinity for visual effects. And so that's one of the reasons why you do these visual effects shorts. Sadly, um, I have a couple issues when it comes to something like that. One, I'm colorblind. Um, Two, I'm also color stupid. So, which is probably a direct result of when I was younger, you know, trying to identify colors was frustrating. So I simply avoided it at at all costs. So I'm not the guy you want. Uh, Yeah, for that stuff. However, um, I can do a small degree of it. Did you guys see um, Stuff and Stuff? No. Stuff I haven't stuff. gotten to that yet, but I, uh, I've seen a, I've seen a lot of shorts. Stuff and stuff was uh, I had a sketch comedy uh, improv troupe called Bizarre Love Triangle, and we were going to start like doing uh, a YouTube channel and podcast. And we're going to do all these things, and the one thing we managed to record and put up there was a short called Stuff and Stuff, which was like a late night commercial. And I did all the keying, I did all the effects, and there's a sequence where the two girls are like, "You can find like an autograph." 
picture of Neil deGrasse Tyson, a used human liver, an ejection seat. And there's, it's not like they're real, real special effects, but they're the right level of cheesiness for it. And I did all of those. Oh, nice. If you saw the Grindhouse trailer for um, Lunchtime is Over. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> and and full full credit for that. That was a Gilbert had the idea of making it a ripoff of Airplane. Was it Gilbert or it was Ted? And then we lined up the people. But I'm the one who put it together. And I'm the one who decided let's make it Grindhouse looking because otherwise it doesn't mean anything. And I also was the guy who um, put the energy ball that's in the superhero's hand. I did all that. That took me... 12 hours, which is why I don't do special effects or talking visual about effects. Dark, Dark Spectre 2? No, no. I'm talking about the Lunchtime is Over Grindhouse trailer. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. The gotcha. one where there's a line of people and they punch the burger and, and then you see like there's a guy there with like a pool cue and there's someone there with yeah. a gun and then there's a superhero and there's an energy ball in his hand. Oh, okay. God, did I? Okay, I know yeah. I, I did <laughs> see it. I was going through a whole, like I was cramming a whole lot of shorts before before this but i did see it and i did dig the fact that it was grindhouse style but uh yeah i didn't notice the uh the fireball although although i will say that that fireball took you 12 hours Ulrich and i did a uh iphone challenge and i was challenging myself to do a short film with visual effects and you know i'll i tell you i have a whole new respect for vfx artists it's it's crazy and yeah it is so much wait work. wait but how long did it take you to do yours jeff sorry bruce no problem i i think the the toughest one was the there's gonna be this this last shot that is high up where we took the phone high up looking down at my son and i and so when i get shot with a laser beam i you know i blow up in a puff of smoke but we didn't I didn't plan for that. So normally, you know, I would have an effect plate there and then put, you know, myself in in that same spot so that when I go into post, it's just, oh, okay, now I'm I'm there, now I'm not. But because I didn't plan for it, I had to go into the computer and then literally like cut and paste certain parts of that video and put it over me in the shot so that I could actually and 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 make it look good so that I could get disintegrated and yeah. you know it still looks good so and and the camera's moving if I remember correctly and the too. camera's moving yeah so I had to track <laughs> the shot too whoo man so all in all that one probably took me about five hours oh I thought it was gonna be like 20 hours 40 hours <laughs> well I mean, I, you know, you you go through your YouTube. Well, okay, I guess if you add YouTube University, like, how do I do all this stuff? Yeah, I guess it could easily be twenty hours worth of uh, okay of there work on it. But you know, once I got the general idea of what I needed to do, then I just kind of putzed around and trial and error, and I was like, oh, okay, there we go. Yeah, the best thing you can learn is like, hey, I'm gonna do this thing. I need to get a lot of tracking information. I need to get a. I need to have a nice, clean background plate. And until you've screwed up doing it a few times, you don't realize what you need to do these things effectively. So, because unless you have like a buddy who's a VFX artist, it's just like, oh, cool. I've oh, wouldn't it be great if it, since we've got this shot, if we add that, and then you try to add that, and it takes you know, 30 hours of research 
and then like seven hours of doing various things for me um, in the grindhouse thing, the hand didn't track well. I couldn't get after effects to track the hand. So I had to hand rotoscope that frame by frame the oh entire time. God. It's trapped. Yup. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then, you know, put the ball in the center of it. And then I had to like cut half the hand, like cut the hand in half and put that in front so that, you know, the balls in the hand and not just floating in front of it. Um, try to get a little glow. So it's reflecting off the body. That's another little bit. It's, and like, I don't know what I'm doing because my goal is not to be a VFX artist. Uh, my goal is to be a writer, producer, actor, and then eventually down the line, more of a director as time goes on. So for the whole introduction of VFX was accidental into my career. So really quickly, so, so you're doing this day job and then you basically, you're in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Like the whole time that you're doing the day job, are you going out for auditions and you, are you trying the acting thing? Or are you kind of like not really focusing on that in your life? Unfortunately, that was what I wanted to do. And the day job got in the way of it because I became a freelance technician and people who would hire me, I had a certain amount of clients. So I had a nice living wage, but they wanted me. I couldn't, one, I didn't want to grow the business because I absolutely hated doing it and I always hated doing it. But if somebody was calling, they were calling for me to fix the problem. If I had hired somebody else, even if they were competent, people would not have appreciated that. And then I'd have to manage that guy while I was doing other work. So it really got in the way of trying to pursue my acting or doing any of these projects. It did help me get the money for some of this stuff. But ultimately, if if you think about like if you think like in terms of a clock and and my dreams are at, you know, 12 o'clock up at the top um computers would be at six so um it's not even tangentially (laughs) connected it pulls me completely away it's not like hey if i got a job as an editor which i can edit i'm decent at it but not good enough that you'd hire me that would be more like a three you know from 12 right um ultimately what happened is I made the mistake that just about a lot of, not just about everybody, but a lot of people do, which is I was involved with the wrong person. Oh, um, okay. And one of the things, if you're trying to pursue anything, not acting, not produce, doesn't matter anything. If the person you're with is not supportive, you can weather the gravity yeah. of friends, not believing in you, maybe your parents, not believing in you, your brother or sister, But if it's the person you live with, if it's the person whom is supposed to love you more than anything else, and if they don't believe in you, that is an anchor around your neck and you will fail. You will not escape that gravity. Or if they don't believe in what you, if they don't share your dream or they don't give your dream like any kind of validity, because like Mm -hmm. maybe they'll believe in you, but they want you to do other things but they don't necessarily want you to do the thing that you want to do. Yes. And that I've been in that situation too. So I, exactly, oh God, I know yeah. what that's like. Yeah. 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 Me too as well. So Bruce, yeah, yeah. We, I we feel you. you. I feel all of you. Um, not literally because we're on the other side of <laughs> God knows what. And but I'll touch my microphone just a moment. Okay. Um, let's, let's all touch our mics really quick. Okay. However, <laughs> one of the key things that happened for me, her name was Liz. And um, the person I was with, this unsupportive person whom, when I was shooting under the doghouse with, uh, I was with her when I was shooting under the doghouse whom, and here's the level of support. So I'm shooting this like month long weekend shoot. It's costing me more money than I've ever spent in my life on something that wasn't a car. 
I'm, I'm dealing with all these circumstances I've never dealt with before. I don't know what's going on half the time. Uh, the guy who's supposed to help me produce it is having weird power trip fantasies. Meanwhile, this girlfriend of mine who was a um, roller derby chick and like for up until I did under the doghouse, it it was all about like going to her bouts and I was there all the time and I was supportive of her and I went to her practices and everything. I'm a month in. And she literally says, and I'm like dealing with all these things I've never dealt with before. It looks like it's going to collapse at any moment. And I'm talking to her about it for like 20 minutes. And she literally said to me, are you done yet? Because I'd like to talk about me now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. uh, I I mean, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say anything. What's the context behind that? Because that's that's not uncommon uh, language in a relationship. Yes. I, well, I, I, I don't think, we, I think but the, t- the tone, to the, the tone might be different potentially, but the language is similar. <laughs> so but anyways, we, continue. So for, fast forward a couple years and I had met this girl, Liz, and Liz had become my girlfriend and she has always been, I want to do this. Oh, do that. I want to do this. You do that. So when I wanted to do dark specter for, you know, the original Dark Spectre, she was all about that. When I wanted to do Dark Spectre too, she was like, she's an, she's an associate producer on it. And then ultimately, and this is how supportive she is, and this is where things start changing. About two years ago, and, and I want to preface this by four years ago, I weighed about 190 pounds. I got a new computer client whom were the actual clients themselves were lovely to me. But the person I had to answer to was the owner of the company's brother in England. And we had a contentious relationship. So I went from weighing 190 pounds to, and I'm not kidding, 270 pounds in the course of a year. Oh, wow. Yes. So, and that's something I'm working my way back down from. And I was on the increase when I filmed Dark Spectre 1. Because of that, she sat me down and she was like, let's talk about what you want to do. You should start leaving computers and you should start focusing on what you want to do. We're in a circumstance you can do that. I can help you. And you should concentrate. But if we're going to do this, you need to concentrate on it. You need to focus on it. And you need to get there because we can't do this forever where you essentially just push yourself forward. That is what my girlfriend Liz did. That's who... So that's who I'm with now. And it's because of that that now these efforts are going forward. It's because of that that, you know, I can meet up with my writing partner and spend six hours working on a script so that you know we have our feature to shoot this summer wow so you're so you're not uh working uh another job you're kind of just doing this full-time right now no yes and no i'm mostly out of computers but i still have several clients that i I work with so this will be as far as that job goes my lowest earning year ever but i still do some of it so you're just doing some like part-time basically so you've like just increased your hours for the time being considerably but i've put a lot more effort into how am i growing this so um yeah you know one of the things you know i've got dark specter 2 and lunchtime is over happening at the same time i've put a lot of effort and time into putting them out the festivals trying to get interviews trying to talk to people trying to establish myself as a name and a brand so that um i can be marketed i have a pr person um i just signed with new management literally 
before going on the air. Oh, wow. Um, Congratulations. Why, thank you. Um, Congratulate me in six months when something's come out of it. Um, Hey, man, I don't think either Jeff or I have managers, so, you know, um, you got to take that compliment. I have an agent, but I don't have a manager. Oh, you have an agent? Jeff. I mean. I I have nothing, man. I'm by dude. myself over here. Dude. <laughs> All right, should we start singing? Uh, should, no, should I'm we just start kidding. Singing? I'll buy myself. No, oh, no. Don't. You don't want um, me to sing. Small animals so. fall out of trees at the lyrical sound of my voice. <laughs> but yo, of all I, my I got skills, a, no singing. I got a quick question. But yeah. okay, no singing. Um, you had mentioned no, a little while No, sing me the question. Ago. Oh, jeez, oh, no. That's the last thing no. I will do. I will never no. break out in song. No. <laughs> yo, so you had mentioned a little while ago that where you you were working and you demanded a particular amount of money and 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 not flinching so how were you able or were you able to transfer you know monetary value from the tech world working in IT to the arts what you're doing now well i think um i mean what i'm doing now is i'm doing my own project so it's hard like I'll pay me whatever I want to pay me. Um, but it's it's more of a matter of being able to transfer that confidence. One of the, uh, certainly with um, actors, one of the defining differences between people who constantly get cast and people who don't is a sense that they have enough confidence that you don't need to build them up. You don't need to worry about where they're, where they're at emotionally. Because when you're putting on a production, you there's so much going on. You don't want to be focused on that. You want to believe that your actor is ready to go in the same way you want to believe that your gaffer knows how to flag up the scene and know how to put down the lights so that you're not getting weird shadows or that people are being blinded by the sun. You, you, you don't want to worry about like nobody's worried about the below the lines emotional state of being where you're everyone's always worried about talent and above the line because below the line are not allowed to have emotion um certainly beyond the fear of talking to above the line where you know when i'm on a set i'm concerned about things getting done i'm not concerned about my emotional state and i'm not worried about whether i'm going to be able to pull something off or not i know i can do those things it taught me to present myself as a professional i am the solution to your problem you need this person to do these actions to get these shots and i can do all of that and i can do it in a reasonable amount of takes if not on the first or second take that's kind of the major lesson is i'm of value and and you take it seriously like you like learn the things that you need to know before you go on set and you have like a little bit of experience um you know and some wherewithal about you to know that like this is what the actor needs to do at this point and this is yeah. what i'm what's needed out of me basically from and also the, from the crew. Yeah. And also there's, there's another side and like a, a pet peeve that I have. One of the things that I'll notice is um, sometimes things happen on a set and there are delays. So this lighting setup is not going right. And this camera is having an issue. Like the AD wants like is giving the crew 10 minutes to figure it out. It's going to end up being 20 minutes because it's just the problem. Meanwhile, you have, a performer or you have somebody complaining, why are we stopped? What's going on? And that bugs me a little bit because it shows a lack of awareness. It shows a lack of care and concern about the overall project. And it's not that it's their job to to understand why lighting is delayed, but just know that lighting isn't delayed because they're being lazy or, you know, that they just don't want to move faster. They're delayed because they're dealing with a problem. Maybe a generator is blown out and they got to fix that. Who knows? But if we're not shooting right now, we've got a good reason we're not shooting. Right. I've been on, I've been on 
not many have said, but there was one set in particular that was actually one of one of my best shoots. I, I was just acting in it where where scenes were just taking longer uh, than expected because there was this prop that needed to be redesigned uh, in order to get you know in order to get shot right. Well, that bled over to the evening shoot where we ended up staying like to like god awful hours of the night and you know there was one not a cast member but one crew member that was just you know losing their shit and um yeah you just gotta say hey you know what something's going on right now it's getting fixed the ramifications is that we had to stay up all night to get the shot and we got the shot and it looks great i know it's gonna look great so yeah so i i agree yeah well anyways to back to the focus of the story um uh, what were we talking wh- about <laughs> <laughs> I tell me a story no, no, I just wanted to talk about um, the acting and um, basically when you started this thing, was your main goal just to create these projects so you would have a vehicle for yourself to act in? Or was it more about like you wanted to learn everything so that you would like, you know, become a producer, actor, and then eventually director? Was that like always the plan or did that kind of shift into the plan after you did a, a few of these projects. That sounds like a lot more thought went into it than actually did. Well, with Under the Dog House, which was my first for, I mean, you know, when, when you first start becoming an actor, there's this term, producer. What does a producer do? Nobody knows until they actually find themselves having to be one. So, you know, before I moved out here, I was like, yeah, I want to be an I wanted to be an actor because it's not something, it was going to be the, it was what I felt was going to be the biggest challenge that I could ever undertake. And I wanted to do that because I didn't want to do what I was actually good at. So that was kind of the start. And there wasn't much thought beyond that than I did under the doghouse because I was told to do it. And I was like, well, I'll learn how to produce, which I did. But then, because oh, that was just from your, your, your manager or agent was like, you should yeah. do this, this project, this web series. Yes. And from there it became, well, I, I pulled it off. Then it became the realization that if I don't put together a string of things that shows what I can do and how I can do them, I'm never going to like get anywhere I'm never going to do anything and I was like but I also want to so I wanted to produce so under the dog and under the doghouse uh so dark specter one is the next project and a couple years had gone by and what it came out of is I had become a member of uh, I was at second city I was taking improv I had I was taking their conservatory track and um I was also taking voiceover class and I was taking voiceover class um, with somebody who was a member of Fred Willard's Mohos, which is Fred Willard's like little side sketch comedy thing that he does every couple months. And I was um, brought into that. So I began writing sketches for Fred Willard's Mohos. And I, I wrote them with the idea that I need to get material for myself. So I might want to film some of these, but here's a chance to lab them around, like with highly talented, wonderful professional comedians who knows their, know their stuff back and forth. And I could put my writing up on stage and I have it performed by these people and see what works and what doesn't. So Dark Spectre was one of those sketches. So was Approvo. I didn't perform them. I watched other people perform them on stage. But... um. I watched the original Dark Spectre, and bear in mind, the original Dark Spectre was not, they weren't real people, they were sketch comedy tropes. And what's become of Dark Spectre was not planned from the beginning. It was just a sketch comedy thing. It played to my strengths. I could be very funny, I could be threatening, and I could also be, like, lost. So... 
the character that Saul was looking for out of the character. The hero was a hero. And then there was the mother played wonderfully by Judy Nazimitz, who is still a member of the Mohos. I watched them do the sketch live. It was wonderful. I decided I was going to film it. So I had that bit for my demo reel because I didn't have a demo reel, you know, just like everybody else. How do you get cast? Well, they want to see your demo reel. Do you have one? No, you don't. Well, we're not going to cast you. How do I get a demo reel? Well, be in some stuff that we won't cast you in because you don't have a demo reel. Catch 22. So Dark Spectre was a step towards that demo reel. And when I shot it, I knew I wanted to have effects, but of course I had no idea what that meant. I was very lucky because I put out on Craigslist, hey, looking for a VFX artist for a couple shots. Uh, Some pay, but you know low budget. Not many people responded. Those that did gave me quotes that were in the thousands that I didn't have. A month later, I had, you know, we had it edited. It was done, but there was no effects. I was contacted by a name Hart Heckhervian, which I've probably destroyed that name. And considering how much this man has done for me, that is truly a tragedy. But Art contacted me. He was like, hey, do you still need somebody? And he did it for next to no money because he wanted to do that. He was working in commercial VFX and he wanted to do something a little bit fun. So all those effects came from art. And he also did the app in Approvo and that he just did. So I had always wanted Dark Spectre, even in the sketch comedy form that it was, to not be about people who weren't what they were, which is hero and villain. Because a lot of comedy built around the superhero supervillain thing is usually about losers in pajamas who don't have powers posturing against each other. And I didn't want that. I wanted to kind of play with, well, two things. There's kind of like an innate uh, homoeroticism built into the superhero. Um, um, wait, I, I really want to hear about this homoeroticism because I'm a huge uh, fan of uh, the director of RoboCop and a Total Recall. I can't remember his name right now. Paul but, uh, Verhoeven? Verhoeven. And he always talks about um, homoeroticism in, in all his movies, basically. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I would uh, I would love to hear uh, your take on this. I didn't have that much of a take on it. It's just sort of like it seemed like some there was like kind of like a little bit of like muscly men beating the crap out of each other, you know, posturing. And I didn't actually get to relay that too much because as I was writing the script for Dark Spectre, uh, the first thing that came out of it was all this ridiculous gardening language in their posturing. And that wasn't intended. It just, as I was writing the like, finally, I knew this day would come. I carefully laid the steps that would lead to your downfall. And now you have tiptoed your way down the primrose path of your destruction. And then the hero is like, I'm going to weed your evil out of the garden of Eden. That is our fair city. The roots of my evil will pull you to your grave. It's like ridiculous shit. It's, yeah, I'm about to ask you, do, do they need a room or something? Yeah. And so they're posturing and then the mother turns up and misinterprets it as a date because there's her son's, like dressed up in his silly costume and there's a guy dressed in a silly costume that they have superpowers is irre- like, you know, is irrelevant to that. And it was just a joke. They weren't real people. They were tropes. Right, right. None of them were. The mother was the stereo- stereotypical Jewish mother, probably mostly based off my own, totally based off my own. And and was are you talking about the first short or still the sketch at this point? The, the first short, short is the sketch. Oh, it's the same thing. Okay. Yeah. The nice. only difference is, um, you know, they have powers. You see their powers in use. You see that the Dark Spectre is not just wearing, you know, his pajamas. He can generate flames. The spark can pull in 
electricity. They they are what they are. The joke isn't that they wannabes. They're not wannabes. So I didn't want the humor to come from the fact that they were wannabes. So was so that's really interesting to me because like you know this kind of short film it doesn't really feel like something that would necessarily be born out of a sketch necessarily. It kind of feels more like you know what someone would make who just loves superhero movies and is you know basically having fun with it. You Which know? I am. Don't don't d- right. Don't make like I absolutely. As a kid, I love like I read comic books. Um, Watchmen is a very one of nice the original. I, I have to admit, I was highly disappointed in the movie. But let's not get into that. Yeah, um, we don't have to talk about that right now. I, no. I, I'm I'm the same. I read. I didn't read it when I was younger. I read uh, the Watchmen in college like three times and just fell fell in love with it there. And then when the movie came out, I was like, "What the?" Totally well, missed the, the movie. Point. The movie. I think you have certain movies that doesn't really translate well to film. I think Watchmen is one of it, one one of them. Uh, also, Cloud Atlas is uh, something that could possibly be kind of kind of rough to interpret. Yeah, I I, I can see that. Um, and also, one of the problems with that I found for me with Watchmen is they completely missed the whole fact that aside from one or two of them, they were human beings. And even when they were doing their heroing and their fighting, they were still human beings. And that was totally lost. Everybody was a superhuman, even the ones that weren't supposed to be. And the way they fought and the way they dealt with things was just it, it negated the humanity of the entire bit. And we're mm. not supposed to be going down this route. So, so right. wait, so <laughs> right. anyways, I wanted to go back and, and sort of shift gears. Cause we're, you know, we're getting up around an hour here and we, well, we have a little more time left, but Jeff, do you have anything Yo. else you want to talk about before we switch topics? Oh, are you about to make one up? <laughs> yeah, well, because you mentioned earlier, Bruce, about screw the uh, format. We're just going to do it live. Yeah. Do it live. <laughs> Because this is something that's really interesting to me um, in general, just because, you know, I'm, I've uh, made four or five short films um, since 2012. And, you know, like my idea of what the short films would be when I started uh, became very different, um, you know, as time moved on. And, you know, you face the realities of what it means to have a short and what it means to be a short filmmaker versus, you know, a feature filmmaker or a filmmaker who gets to play Sundance or South by Southwest or any of these big film festivals. Um, so my question to you is, so now that you've you've gone through this path and you've made a few short films and you're gearing up to make your feature, where is your mind at? Like, how are you feeling about going through the process? Like, what was it like to make Dark Spectre 1, like, were you hoping that that was going to, like, kind of launch you into, like, a feature film of Dark Spectre? Or did you always know that it was, like, this is just one short in a many series of shorts that I'm going to make before the, the big feature thing happens? Like, where was your head through this process? I wanted demo reel material for Dark Spectre 1. There wasn't much thought aside from the fact that I need to start making things. I didn't really think that it I didn't think about festivals. I didn't think about notoriety. I just wanted, hey, um, if this is on my reel and if it looks like the thing it's trying to be, because that's one of the things that I think that I do and I tried, I certainly try to do is I want everything to look a little bit different and I want it to look professional. Um, Yeah. Because ultimately, I mean, this is my philosophy as it's grown, not that it was at the start, but ultimately everything I do is the only, that listing of shorts is the only thing that most people know about me. Right. So when you look at Bruce Nexon, the producer, Bruce Nexon, the writer, Bruce Nexon, the actor, you have 
six or seven things to look at that tell you who I am as an artist and I want you to take me seriously. So I took them very seriously because I knew in the end somebody needed to was going to look at them. So I was very cognizant that they needed to look right. Um, they needed to be right because at some point I'm going to sit down and ask somebody for a hundred thousand dollars for a million dollars. And I need a, even if I didn't have that money and these are just shorts, I need my work to carry enough weight that they're not going to go <coughs> you. <laughs> yeah. And then do you feel like okay. since you made these shorts that you now have the material, uh, in order to be able to show people to like help get you roles? Like, has that kind of played out in that way? Cause I, I noticed on your IMDB that you have more acting credits than, than anything, you know? So did that sort of, has that been working out a little bit? It's hard to say because ultimately two of my major pieces, which is Dark Spectre 2 and Lunchtime is Over, are very recent. I mean, I'm winning awards for them. I actually, in, in March, the beginning, end of February and the beginning of March, I won my first three awards for acting. Oh, congratulations. Like, uh, oh, congratulations. Yeah. Um, I now have... I went from having no trophies to about, I will have eight of them. One is still not here yet. Oh, nice. It's not that these really mean anything. Don't get me wrong. They are really nice. And when I look at them, I go, (laughs) they're mine. But on IMDb, if you look at my, you look at my IMDb, I am a 16 time award winner. You look at Dark Spectre, it's a 21. No, no, I'm not sure. It's 21 or 26 time award winner for various things. Uh, you look at lunchtime is over. It's a three-time award winner. So that doesn't necessarily really mean anything. But if someone's going to research me or research those projects, according to IMDb, which is you know the Bible, or you know the database, literally it's in the name of movies in our industry, I have legitimacy to some small degree, which I didn't have just four months ago. Yeah. Right. And, well, you put um, in the work to to get to where you yeah. are. I, I I do have a quick question uh, in regards to I know right in regards to <laughs> now. You see some of your short films are going into festivals now, whereas you know before you weren't really focusing on that. So, did you decide to take some of your short films into festivals, or did it just kind of naturally? get that way and this is actually a two-parter and then also the evolution of of your short film so you said that your first one you had like a crew of 40 for my web series for um, okay. over the course of it like uh, there was not one day where 40 people were there okay. but ultimately a crew of about 40 people there was a, there was a core group and out of those there were people who became you know like legitimate friends uh my preferred um acad his name is matt borak and he was a camera op on um under the doghouse i've maintained a friendship with him there's a guy named Mm -hmm. spencer smith gaffer um and he wasn't even you know i'm watching him grow up um incredibly smart talented wacko guy love love him he became a friend of mine um the guy who did sound i've only met him in person once his name marcelo quinosis quinosis my question is the evolution of your shorts from your first one to your web series what was the one thing that you know you wanted to uh do better on the next one you know what i mean like each short each piece that you do you know, you're like, okay, well, this didn't work out well this time, or hey, this did work well. How can I improve upon that? I think the one thing I wanted to do was learn how, on the first thing, which was the web series, I made a poor choice in who I asked to be a director. I had a poor choice in who was the producer. I ended up 
without even knowing what a post-production process was, having all this footage and all these things. And then my director of photography kind of helped me get through the post-production process and I wanted to know how not to be in that situation again. Then um, with Dark Spectre 1, I relied too much on my producing partner. Once again, poor choices were made in choice of director. Um, some other production mistakes were made and I wanted to avoid those. Um, on Approvo, I avoided a lot of those those mistakes and it came out pretty much what like I wanted. Then on Dark Spectre 2, like on the, there's like a couple other little projects that don't really matter, like stuff and stuff. And there was like something that didn't really ever get completed called The Troop, which was both out of Bizarre Love Triangle. Um, they didn't matter because they were just like little sketches we were throwing together. So, you know, that I learned that if you're shooting green screen and if someone's hand leaves the green screen reshoot that because the rotoscoping is going to be a real pain in the ass and, you know, shoot the green screen better. So, but I had had, by that point, I was directing that, even though I won't consider that a directorial debut because it was just a little sketch. It's like calling this, you know, it's like I've run a radio show. I did my podcast. Um, that's right. This. Um, but then with dark specter too, it was such a grand thing. And for that, it was like, I want this to look like it fell off of a movie and it does. And with lunchtime is over, it was like, here's a essentially this project that started out of we need stunt footage. I want this to look like a movie and I want this to be exciting and I want this to have life and I want it to be not a series of stunts, but like a funny, almost Buster Keaton kind of silent Jackie Chan's kind of comedic thing on top of like decent action. And I also want to have more control and like make decisions, but also learn how to delegate so that if I, you know, Jeff, you're my DP, I'm relying on you to make those decisions and I will just check in on you, but I will not sit on top of you and micromanage you because micromanagement is the death of getting any of this stuff done because you just can't do it and pull it off. You get, you got to trust your collaborators. Um, so I, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this, but I think you mentioned poor choices in directors before and choosing directors for previous projects and as a director, and I know there's a lot of directors listening, I'm just curious, like, how did you go about finding your directors for those projects? And then if you want to, if you're willing to like talk about like what the problems were and how you overcame those in, 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 you know, just one example, I guess. No, I'm willing to talk. I, I have no fear. Um, so the director of Under the Dog House, I was taking an improv class with him. Okay. And he was my teacher. And he directed the stage show. And he seemed to have this great grasp of comedy. And this was my first project. It was comedy. And I asked him to direct. He was like, is there money? And I was like, there is not. He was like, I'll do it anyway. Um, he was like, you're not going to be bound to the script, are you? You're going to be flexible. And I didn't realize at the time the answer to that is, no, we're bound to the script. I, I, I put in a lot of thought and we have to edit this together. So it needs to be consistent. So we'll stick to the script. I didn't know that at the time. I was like, whatever you want to do because you're so wonderful and brilliant. And, and did you write this or did someone else write it? I wrote it. Oh, you everything, wrote it. Okay. Everything that I've shot, I've written or have written as part of a collaboration team. Oh, okay. Okay. Under the Doghouse was written by me and I had another writer friend come and help me work through ideas and strengthen some stuff. And she didn't even want a writing credit, but I gave it to her because I wanted her to have her first credit. But she did help me a lot. So we had three weekends to shoot under the doghouse. Uh, the first weekend, the entire shoot 
um, we ended up having to reshoot on top of everything we needed to shoot on the third weekend. We needed to reshoot the entire first weekend as well because it was all crap. What do you mean? In what way? Just like the angles, the acting, everything? Or first, uh, one of the problems was a technical problem that was not realized until on the day, which is we were trying to shoot camera versus camera in a location that had low ceilings. Oh, so we couldn't get the light like high above us pointing down so that the shadows would be on the floor and it wouldn't matter. The shadows were all over the wall and they were like X shadows and it was, so all the material was bad. Oh, I um, see. Some of the direction was bad. We began having clashes. And also one of the things that occurred is when he originally signed on to do it, it was all about, you know, being serious, make it comfortable. We're going to have a read through. Then we're going to have another read through. We had the one read through. We timed it out. He gave me notes. I rewrote the script, gave it back to him. Did you read the script? Of course I did. It's great. I was like, are we doing another read through? He's like, look, I'm giving you as much time as I can. He was the one who, was call- who had called for a second read through, but then we don't have time for it. Okay, fine. We start shooting and it, it's just not what I had written. Then the next weekend, mm. he didn't. Oh, one of the problems that I think Under the Doghouse suffers from is a lot of the the female characters and it kind of come off some degree unpleasant a lot of the times and they were specifically and i and i made this clear that it was important that the character the female characters none of them were unpleasant because we wanted what was happening to the main character to be like his fault and we wanted people to feel bad when it happened it was part of the comedy that when in the second episode when he's going out on this date and his friend turns up that you don't dislike either of the women because like and that it's the circumstance of what they're going through that makes the comedy but right right. they were all directed to be kind of unpleasant Um, oh i see the only episode i feel well in in one of the episodes with the psychic she's not unpleasant either but i i think the main character came the main female character came off harsher than she should have because that's what the direction guided her in the second weekend happened and at this point I had had the first weekend and it went really poorly and I realized there was a lot of things wrong with it. And in the second weekend, um, one of the episodes, and this is the one where um, Colleen, who was assistant producing on it, she also remembered that I said, like, it needed not to be unpleasant. And she was like, the character written who was actually on the page the most unpleasant because she's just messing with me. But she does it in such a bright, cheery, funny, like loving, like cute way that like she comes off that way, which was wonderful. It's exactly what we wanted. But we began having problems because, um, for an example, that weekend we shot the very first episode. And the very first episode, the whole premise of it is this guy gets a job interview. He's, But his buddy got him the job interview. But in his, in his buddy's house, he sees this porno, this homemade porno. So meanwhile, when he's interviewing with at the job, the boss is this girl. So she's telling him all. Oh, I see. She's telling him all this really important stuff. Meanwhile, all he hears is this porno music. So he's not hearing how he's going to be electrocuted. So meanwhile, and and that's, that's the premise of it. And then at the end you see him in under like in over his head. So we get to shooting this thing. The first thing he does is he clutters up her desk and um, we go into the rehearsal and she does not stop moving. She is moving like she's and I know it's not her choices. So when it cuts, I turn to him and and I, I don't say anything to her. And I, I look at him and I go, why is she acting like that? And he was like, well, I thought the material was dry and I thought it needed something to to, you know, boost it up. 
And it's clear in the script what's going to happen, which is when you see her, you don't hear her talk. You just hear this music and it kind of is zooming in on her and it's almost like an objectification. But when you see me and I'm looking at her just like drooling, you hear what she's saying. And what she's saying is stuff about being electrocuted, being familiar with standards. It's a lot of technical jargon. It's not meant to be funny because that's not where the joke is. He didn't know because he didn't read the script. He didn't care. I made them clear the desk off because high-powered people don't have cluttered desks. They don't. High-powered people don't move. They stare you in the eye. They tell you what to think and they dare you to blink. And that's what she needed to be. And that's what she was capable of doing. She was wonderful. Erin was wonderful. The next weekend, after that weekend, which we got what we needed, but that was because I was now arguing and fighting back. And also my location manager, um, several people on that crew were backing me up for what I was asking for and kind of making him do what needed to be done. So a day before the third weekend, he calls me up and he had this booming lyrical voice stage trained. Hi, Bruce. I'm just calling to let you know that I have strep throat. I'm not going to be able to make it. Wow. Like, you don't know what strep throat is, do you? Yeah, you definitely can't talk if you have strep throat. (laughs) And so that was it. Fortunately, uh, another producer, her name, Gloria, Gloria found a replacement director, some guy who used to be a director, but he had gotten out of it. But now he's looking for something to do with the understanding. I'm coming in this weekend to shoot what we need to shoot. And that's my involvement. I don't want to be involved in the editing. I I just want to get my hands like back into directing and I'm available. His name was Michael Apowitz. Um, I hope he's still directing because he did a wonderful job. Oh, nice. Well, there you go. Got some luck on the second one. Yep. But the original director, like we had, we ended up shooting half of the series that weekend. It was insane. And I nearly was, I almost had like a nervous breakdown because like if we didn't get this weekend done, we had nothing like the entire series. And then it took another eight months to get through post-production because I had to learn post-production along the way because the producer guy was macking on the other producers, um, no. Gloria and um, the <laughs> AD Rakia, who also was uh, like, LA. <laughs> yep. Um, and he wasn't making any of the decisions he was supposed to make. Anything he told me I should do was great advice. Anything left in his hand was a disaster. And then he was pulling power moves and eventually after getting footage from him, like I had to kowtow to him just till I got this footage. And the moment I got this footage, I then fired him. Um, so that was the first project. Well, well, here, really quickly, I don't, I don't think we have time to hear about all the other, you know, stories you may have. But but really quick, I just want to sort of like, what's your... So after going through multiple uh, experiences like this that were ended up negative, what did you learn when selecting your team uh, in future projects that worked out well? Because it seems like you've had good experiences on the last few ones. So, like, what are, what are some of the things that you are able to do to, like, avoid the situation that people might be able to, like, pay attention to? I'm a very collaborative person, and that may or may not be a plus or a negative depending on who I'm working with. So one of the things I do is, let's say, um, Arik, I was going to hire you as a director. Uh, the first thing to un- that we'd come to is an understanding of – to what degree um, creative decisions are made. Now, that is to say, I do expect the director to have a large creative hand, but it's not total control. And there should be no expectation of it being total control. Right. From the get-go, 
And I always have a shot or two that I want there. I will think of something and I will know I want this. So we're going to get this shot. An example is in Dark Spectre 1, the opening shot. We didn't get the shot I wanted because there was a technical issue that was supposed to be solved that didn't happen. But that's not the point. But the feet landing, camera panning up, me looking in camera, fist ignite, point the door, shooting at door. Then it was supposed to rack focus back. And then you were supposed to see the fist come in and spark. From the moment I knew I was going to shoot Dark Spectre, I knew I wanted that shot. And when I hired the director, I told her I wanted that shot. And on hiring day, that was fine. Then um, when we got to, we were talking about like setting up shots, she got all upset about that because who's the director here? I was like, you're the director, but I made it clear. I want this shot. Um, And the problem with that experience was she thought she had total control. She wanted total control and said, I was just a writer and actor. No, I'm the guy paying for it. My creative vision matters as much, if not more, because I'm paying for it. Yeah. If you're, if you're, if you're the producer and you're hiring, I mean, that's the thing I learned last year, you know, like I got to pay to direct some things and uh, yeah, you want script changes? Uh, Maybe, but probably not. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's like, it's not, that's not your, that's not in your power. You know, the trick is that I try to get to and I try to learn is the, the people you bring in can shape your creativity and you have to have a two way street that that's allowable. So you have to be able to work with the person, have a process to make that happen. So um, a good example is, uh, I can have this kind of relationship with Richard, um, the director of Dark Spectre 2. Um, there's another project that you guys haven't seen because it's hidden, at, but I will send you the link so you can see it called Nothing Personal. And we can communicate, we can argue, um, have the creative differences, and this is this, that is that, and we will come around um, to each other's point of view depending on which one's better. And and by better, there's also Manny, um, Gutierrez, who is my producing partner, writing partner. Um, And it tends to be a three-way decision between the three of us. And we come to a consensus on what we think is the best course of action. We do it rapidly. Um, And then, you know, um, my current preferred director of photography, Ted Endress, that guy is a creative wellspring of great visual ideas. Some really cool stuff like fell out of his noggin and onto the screen. And we allow for that and we allow that process to go back and forth. So um, nobody has complete total control. I don't. Richard doesn't. Manny doesn't. Ted doesn't. None of us do. But between right, because you're collaborating. Yeah, yeah. You're working together. You're 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 listening to all the different department heads. You guys are coming to decisions as a team. Right. And finding out what works best, you know, for for the story. Real quick question in regards to the director that that didn't want to uh, do those shots. Did you have those shots already in your head, or was that at spur of the moment thing i guess what i'm asking is like did you did did you opt in to like say hey you know what every now and again i might say hey i want this shot you know can we get that in for for today i was still new to how a set is supposed to run um and my producing partner at the time uh kind of was um very admiring of the person she suggested and brought on to be the director and so she was catering to the director and had implied that I should be catering to the director, even though I never ever agreed that I would give up complete total like artistic control. Um, And I very much was having problems with that because 
I'm a very creative person and these are my ideas. Um, even when I'm sharing them with other people, they're still originating from me. That isn't, and once again, I don't need to have total control. I certainly need to have my ideas listened to. And I was clear from the get go that I'm looking for collaboration because I always knew that I was. And when I was told I can't have any creative say, I had a problem with that. And um, they locked editing without consulting me. And then I went back and removed seven frames of footage because um, there was a couple camera movements that felt to me that you hear heard action. Like what you, you know what I mean by that? That the camera the camera when you cut to it should be alive and moving. Unless you have a very specific reason for the camera shouldn't move, like be still and then move because that my perception, my feel, which when it's my production matters, is it ruins the illusion that this is a living, breathing environment, that this is happening in real time. So I took out four frames from one shot like that, and then I took out three frames from another. And I was being incredibly generous because there was a lot of shots that weren't working for me. Even though I'm happy with the end result, it's not the edit I would have wanted because I wasn't consulted and I was supposed to have say. And then I was given a talking to from my producing partner about being controlling, which I wasn't being controlling. I wanted to have my say. And oh yeah, we didn't get you know, 40% of the shots we should have because, well, I'm not sure of the reason because one of the downsides to when you're, you know, producing and acting and, you know, we're running out of time is you're trusting in your team and you don't know how they're lining up the shots unless they tell you, okay, this is a close up. So I had no idea that we didn't get the reverses for some stuff. And do you think going forward, you've alleviated that problem and lack of a better word of saying it. So something like that won't happen again. Yes. I mean, don't get me wrong, you run out of time and then you end up being like, okay, we didn't get this. Or, you know, in the case of um, lunchtime is over, we shot a five day shoot in like two days. So there's lots of pieces of that that we just never planned on getting because it wasn't in the cards. We had the amount of time we had and we had it in a highly ambitious shoot. Um, and, you know, with that, you accept the limitations going forward, like knowing going in and make it work from that point of view. You just make sure you get the shots you need to get and sort of deal with it as it falls down. But yeah, I'm much better about that. And also from the next short after Dark Spectre 1 was Approvo and um, Ron West, who was a wonderful director, um, one of the top director um, theater directors in Los Angeles and also a very good uh, film director, knows what he wants. We had nice discussions and it was to reflect what I wanted plus his creative vision and that worked out fine. It's the ex it's setting expectations ahead of time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Whenever I start a collaboration with somebody, it's always like that conversation, you know, like how do you want this to go? Like, how do you want to work together? Like, what are you looking from, from me as a director or even a producer? Sometimes, you know, I do producing too. And, uh, yeah, I think having that initial conversation is so important because you'll, you'll see sometimes a lot of those warning signs in that first conversation. And then, you know, it gives you time to find someone who's you're better suited to work with or something. And the other thing that happens is um, when you're doing your own stuff, you start simply building the team around you that you trust. So, like, you start off, or at least I start off going like, well, you know, I want to give people chances and I want to collaborate and I want to find people. But then 
you start paying heavy prices for that. And then it's sort of like, well, I know I can trust him. And since I'm literally going to put myself, I'm going to max out my credit card to get this done so that it becomes a certain thing. I can't risk it on somebody else. I have to do this with him because he's going to come through for me. And while I would love to give this person a shot, I don't know who this is. I, I, I don't know. I, I, need to, I need to invest my time in the person who's going to get it done for me the way I know they're go- that it's going to be right. So funny enough, I get approached by a lot of composers more than anything oh, else. Yeah, that's a very, yeah, I get those too yeah. <laughs> all the time. The but composer emails. <laughs> yeah. And I would, I would love to work with somebody else, except I would love to work with Marcelo more. And I trust Marcelo and Marcelo like gets my line of thinking and gives me the options I want to have. And then he produces this wonderful music that like one of the things about Dark Spectre one is the music's great. And then dark and then he continues it into Dark Spectre two and it really helps tell the story. And then he does the same thing in Lunchtime is over and then he does the same thing in Approvo and he did it in Under the Doghouse. So. Yeah, I'm sure there's other wonderful composers out there to work with, but Marcelo's been my boy. How the hell do I not work with him? Because he's going to do it right. I know that. And that's something I don't have to worry about. And I have so many things to worry about. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, oh, yeah. you, I think you find your, your collaborators, the people that you love to work with. And then if all if at all possible, you just always work with the same people again and again. I mean, I do like look, working with different people and different uh, team members on different projects, you know. But, yeah, there are certain people who I'm like, yes, you are my AD. Yes, you are my, you know, gaffer or whatever, you know. Um, and that's just how I like to work. Um, so Jeff, uh, you have any final big questions? I have one final question. This is kind of a silly question. Alec is probably going to be very grumpy with me about this. Uh, very okay. grumpy. We're not worried <laughs> about it. Make, make, make me sound so terrible. Jeez. <laughs> with your short film, uh, lunchtime that the big brawl. Yep. I was, uh, this is really just me joking around but i really 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 dug it up until the part where the suit punched the uh the warehouse guy and i was like oh you're gonna let the office win <laughs> so how that last lick uh how how the last hit come about i'm just i'm just curious uh to be honest <laughs> um since that was my noggin getting smooched i just kind of um didn't care who won and since the original goal for lunchtime is over was to get stunt footage for everybody. Cause I briefly was entertaining the idea that maybe as a way of making some money, um, I could do some, I could do stunts because for somebody my size, I move great. You know, that flip that not the first one, but the second one, that was a Sayuchi onto concrete. I did that. Like you can't, necessarily tell from the angle of no pads no i mean i'm padded up like i didn't i landed on concrete but i had a back shield i had action shorts i had knee pads arm pads ankle pads like i wasn't stupid um i mean i was stupid i did it but like my head No, but you took the precautions i was just yeah yeah and i and i trained that like i for months I was doing Seiyuchis. I can, I can, when I do a Seiyuchi, um, certainly when I'm used throwing back with my right leg, I can get six inches of head clearance off the ground. So I'm not rolling. I'm flipping in the air and landing on my back. And it was about getting these things. But then it dawned on me. Um, if I get into stunts and I'm successful getting into stunts, I'm going to be a stunt person. People see you as you present yourself. It's important that people see me as a John Favreau or a Seth Rogen or a Jonah Hill. People can't, I can't 
be a stunt performer because then I'll end up getting locked into stunt performing. Does that happen to everybody? I don't know, but it happens to a lot of people. People will take you as you present yourself. So I can't present myself that way, but it's nice to have the skills because in what I want to do is dark specter is present a series and have a ser- and sell a series and be the dark specter. I also want to do a decent amount of the fighting because I hate when you can tell it's a stunt person or you know, there's lots of quick cuts to hide the fact that the fight sucks, which in a lot of action stunt stuff, even when the stunt performers are really good, they're hiding the fact that it's not the actual performer doing these things. So you don't see the hits land. You don't see, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to end on that thing, that last back and forth between me and the, like the warehouse supervisor who was me and the CFO who was Bill is those punches look like they're landing. It looks like we're hurting each other. Um, and that's a lot better than you get in most films. One of the consistent compliments we get on Lunchtime is Over is the action feels good. The jokes aren't the punches or hits, though there's some humor built into them. You buy the action as like we're hurting each other. And that was the point. So, you know, we ended on me showing the skill that I wanted to show. Um, well, but I, I agree would, with I, you. They should have lost. <laughs> totally. I think that was a much better answer than the question. Um, so good job, Bruce. You get top points for that one. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, Bruce, you did a great job. Jeff, go, go sit in the corner just, somewhere. Just, yeah, just, whatever, man. <laughs> like a good support player in volleyball, you did a nice setup for me to spike at home. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Thank that's, you, Bruce. Thank you, funny. Jeff. So you mentioned earlier that you're prepping to shoot your first feature this summer. Um, I'm just curious, like, how are you going to make that happen? Have you raised funds? Are you raising funds? Are you going to just uh, bootstrap it, Kickstarter? Like, how, how are you getting this film made? Well, the answer is um, the idea of doing a feature has come about in the last week. Um, and how this happened is... Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so I very much... I'm about making things happen. I don't sit on ideas for long periods of time because my experience has been if you sit on an idea, it doesn't happen. And there are, you, you, you all have friends and you all have people you know who have that script they're working on or have that project that they've been in pre-production for the past three years, and it's just never going to happen. So what happened in this instance is I've been getting a degree of success with Dark Spectre 2 and Lunchtime is over. As much as I would like, of course not. I'd like so much more, but you know... What can you do? Um, but I'm, but we're releasing Dark Spectre 2 um, May 1st. We're going to release it through Facebook video just with hopes that, that we'll get more traction there. But the reality is after that's done, that's the material that I have ready to go. And what's getting people to talk to me and be interested in me is the fact that I have things going. So I need something else to start now. So I approached um, my writing partner, Manuel, with the idea of like, hey, why don't we collaborate with Gilbert producing partner from lunchtime is over and why don't we you know do do like write a silly pilot we'll write a pilot we'll write a pilot we'll put together you know i know we're doing the dark specter pilot and and the bible but we'll do something kind of like spaced and we'll like we can get it like knocked out in two weekends and manny was like you know what i'm not interested in that because we've done so many shorts and a pilot is just another short and we've already proven we can do that and nobody's going to be interested beyond the shorts that we've done there's only one thing we have left that we can do to make people interested and prove that we are who we say we are and that's a feature so if you want to do a feature i'm interested the conversation was long but that was the end result. So it was like, okay, nice. It's like, 
I was like, I will tell you what, I'm on board to do a feature as long as we do this. So we started coming up with the idea of the script we're going to write. We're actually um, one act into our beat sheet because the way we write is we come up with the idea. We write an initial beat sheet. We work on the beat sheet like three or four go rounds. And then we just write from beat to beat to beat so that the script writing process goes by pretty fast. And then I have a writing mentor who then reads it over and points out all the flaws that his Emmy award winning ass can pick out. Um, then we rewrite it, send it to an editor, rewrite it one more time. So we, we're going to take that process and we're doing it in six weeks. Then we have decided that wow. we, we need to raise funds um, because we want to do a low budget film, but we need, we figure we'd be comfortable if we had $200,000. We're, we're planning on what we're shooting to be sort of like a dark comedy horror thing that we can shoot in some podunk town, like a, like a hundred miles away from Los Angeles. And, and we're writing the script based on the idea that we're going to be able to shoot it for a low amount of money, but we would like to, we still need to have some money. So we're going to, for the first time, have to fundraise. If I, I'd be lying to say, if I told you, we know how we're going to do this, we really don't. So the, goal is to try to get 10% of that and then use that as like proof and and pitch like put together a budget and a business plan here's how you're going to get your money back here's the time frame yeah. that we're going to sell the idea is to sell mm-hmm. it you know we're going to put it in festivals of course because not a lot of features go into festivals because it's hard to make a feature well less than shorts at least yes and um you know we're going to try to shoot for x amount of minutes so that it's feature length but it's not ridiculously long we're good at humor we're good at self-editing we'll make something that's interesting and fun we're starting off with like here's the basic idea if it's not the basic idea what could it be it'll be um you know we'll get through the process and we'll plan to shoot it no matter what later in the summer, but you know, we're going to try to raise funds and I'm beginning to meet people partially through the gym that I'm at, partially through the fact that some people are taking notice of me and it might be possible that if not get funding from them, certainly to get advice on how to get funding and branch right. it from do you there. Plan on, do, you, do you plan on getting any name talent to guest star or what have you? Um, since we haven't gotten to the end of the script, that might be a, a potential. Uh, right now, it's sort of one thing at a time, and we need to have the script. And we need to like kind of ask enough people. Like I have a business plan for another project that I put together, and I paid somebody to, to write me up a business plan. So I know how, as a movie, like I have a basic understanding of how the finance dynamics of a movie work. I need to understand them a little better before I try to pitch. But I have the time while we're writing the script to get to the bottom of that. And I've got several people I'm going to go to for advice. Nice. And also, you know, we'll do what everybody does, which is we'll try to get some seed money from family and friends and take that small amount and show we have 10%. So, you know, and here's the percentages we're offering. Here's how those pieces break down. Uh, Manny has somebody who's interested in working with him. If he can re- like get a project to far enough along in a pre-production phase that, you know, he knows that this thing's moving forward. And that will also be a source of some revenue. Um, so we have little pieces, um, but we're moving forward regardless. Nice. Yeah, my advice would be make that budget as small as possible because raising money is very extremely difficult. I've been mm-hmm. doing it for like three years. And, uh, you know, I'm basically at this point where, yeah, I'm going to make the movie no matter what this year. And I'm making it for far less than I will probably end up be far less than I, you know, expected to. But I think it's definitely doable. 
you just need to like you know be realistic on like how much money you can raise and if you have access to people who have funds then it's like they you know then you're way ahead of the game you know um and if that friend and fam friends and family seed money can be larger it's like you're going to be in such a better position but like you know sounds like you're kind of in the rough area that i was with friends and family and it's just it's tough <laughs> oh no, none of this is none of this is easy but none of it has ever been easy yeah so, and, and the other thing too just to say um sorry to cut you off but my my producer has been telling me that like you know if you keep a movie under a hundred thousand dollars in budget the chance of recouping is so much greater than if you go over the hundred thousand and so that's just another thing to keep in mind because like $200,000 used to be like a low amount of money to make a movie. But like now it's like people are making features for $10,000, $20,000, like $15,000, $50,000, you know? And it's just like suddenly when you get to those kind of bigger numbers, it's just harder to recoup unless you have, like Jeff said, like some, some major talent in the lead role, which, you know, I mean, you're obviously a major talent, Bruce, but you, you know, you don't have that uh, name recognition quite yet, which is like really really what people want, you know? And it's been something I've been struggling with trying to find an, an actor that I can put in. in Do my they lead. want that though? And who are they? They are as big as you can get them, <laughs> you know? Um, which well, nothing sucks. says you've got to take the lead, like getting a name right. talent. Nothing says that the name talent, ha- like, cause the lead is going to be like, no matter what, simply because it's not worth the effort to do if it doesn't advance me. Right. Um, absolutely. Like, I mean, at all. Um, so I'm the lead role. Um, Tracy, who is, was an approvo, she's going to be the female lead because, you know, we're like, this is, these are the people I'm building. And, um, it, this is not a matter of being realistic or not. Cause if I was just producing it, then I would definitely be very kind of cold and calculating about it. But the overall goal of this is I'm going to do it and make no mistake I'll do it. Oh no! I yeah, absolutely. Oh no! Yeah, I, yeah. I like that wasn't at you. For that sure. was just yeah. that was just to the world. To the world. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's that's the thing about me is I'm nothing but will. I'm nothing but will and hard work. Everything I have, I've ripped from. I've ripped out of the universe by my teeth, um, and this will be no different. But I'm not going to like if even if we can get a name talent, a name female, they're not going to take Tracy's role. That role is going to be Tracy's. Now there might be other roles because I know what we have in mind and I know the amount of, of roles that are they're going to be. So and the other like like another person who's going to be in it is going to be Gilbert and he's going to have a major role because this is all about building us up. Now I don't will that help sell the film later on? Probably not. Can we get a couple names in it? That's something we'll investigate. Um right now as I said, we're literally a week into having the idea and we're going we're at the start of writing the script which you know we're one act into the beat sheet our the way we work into creating a script and we do have another script that um, we actually just want to sell at this point because it would take a little too much for us to actually do and it's just not of interest to us we enjoy the story we're proud of it it won it won several awards um through various contests um, but we just want to sell it. We just want to make some money off it and leave it to somebody else to deal with. Um, nice. You know, this this project, aside from let's do a feature, it's also let's use it to define, like, to help continue defining us as the people we want to be and the kind of career we want to have. So will that help or hurt raising the money? The raising the money thing is going to be a bitch no matter how it comes down. That's just life and that's just reality. But yeah. that's also not... Um, 
intimidating because just like everything else, you learn how to do it and then you can do it a little bit better without just bugging your dentist. Right, um, right. Right. And you've got you if you if you're not going to raise a whole lot of money, you definitely have more creative control in order for you to do what you want to do to get what you what you need across. Right. Yes. Especially and, if you raise it from people, you know, who just trust you. And it doesn't come from like, you know, traditional investors or people who have higher expectations who will like, you know, want to have say in like who are in these lead roles or whatever, you know. Um, yeah, because. That that's that's a real thing that happens. They're oh, like, I, uh, who's gonna do what? What's happening now? Um, but yeah, anyways. Oh yeah, I've, I actually remember years ago as part of a project, and they, and they wanted me in the lead. Like the guy, the director wanted me in the lead role. Then one of the potential investment invest investors investors didn't like me, so um, he was like, "Well, you can't be in the lead roles, but I'm gonna give you this role from this guy." And I told him, "You know what? I have no interest in this anymore." So I walked away from it. The project never got done. So a uh, lot of times, even when you're trying to kowtow to the money guy, it doesn't mean you get the money in the end either. Um, that that's definitely true. I mean, ultimately, this industry. Let's face it. There's no other industry like this industry. It's it's an abject clusterfuck in the way things happen. The rules don't apply because the rules There's don't exist. There's no right way. Exactly. There's no right way. There's nothing you can do to make somebody um, see you in the way you desperately want them to see you. Um, you can try to anticipate what will make this person happy or that person happy. In the end, I have never regretted charting my own path. I've never regretted standing up for what I wanted. I've never regretted asking for a large amount of money and staring them in the eyes and saying, yes, I'm worth it. Whether they agree or not doesn't matter to me. There will be somebody else to ask. And will it take time? Probably. Will it be easy? No. Will we succeed? Maybe not. Does that mean I'm not going to have a feature? No, it doesn't. Part of the reason why people should want to work with me is because one way or the other, I will get something done and I will not take forever to do it. I have my own philosophies on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, but in the the end result is what's not acceptable is waiting around and hoping and, you know. Right. Waiting for someone to pick you and give you permission. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great, I think that's great advice. Um, I'd also awesome. say don't, you know, I know that you have this goal of shooting in the summer, but you know, there's also no rush at the same time because you know if you make this movie this year or next year does it really matter what's a year but if you make it right in a year rather than rushing it in six months or three months or whatever i don't know anyways that's just something that i learned for myself i mean i know that you have your own philosophies and stuff but i rushed my first short film and i think it might have turned out a little bit better if i hadn't have done that um, and so that's like my philosophy I've taken with this feature is like not to rush it. So I'm like five years in, in development and making this thing and it's like finally ready to be shot. And it's like, you know, I'm really glad that I wait, waited and took the time to do it. And that I didn't just try to make it like three years ago. Cause I wasn't ready to make it three years ago. You know, I'm only ready to make it now. So anyways, but I, you know, I do get that. It's not so much a difference of philosophy. Um, I mean, it, I guess to some degree it is it. What it is with me is I'm not looking to rush, rush it because I've, um, I've done that, but I, I, and there is a mistake to that. I plan regardless to the money to pre-production the shit out of this. I fully expect that we're going to be on a tight schedule 
And the key to succeeding on a tight schedule is knowing what you plan to do each day, having a game plan and having the plan B for when plan A doesn't work out because it's not going to. And that's part of having the team you can rely on. That's part of knowing what you're going to shoot. It's part of writing something because part of what you pointed out about me and we didn't quite fully get to is my projects were more ambitious than my means or my reach were, but I succeeded at them. Yeah. This, this one will be a little bit more of let's shoot to be able to know that we can accomplish what we need to accomplish. Let's minimize some of the factors that will be in the way of make, of making it possible to succeed. And let's know well ahead of time. But the reason I'm kind of set on this year is, as I said, I'm ru- once these projects are out into the world, if I'm in a three-year pre-production cycle, then that means this project will just take forever and, and be on the vine. And it's okay if that has to be for some projects, but this project is specifically designed to be able to be shot regardless to what we raise, regardless to what the answers to any of those things are this year nice. so that we have a feature to go into... Um, basically uh, to be ready for, and does this mean we'll hit this goal? No, we could run into problems. We could have a long post-production process. We could end up, you know, there's thousands of things that could go wrong. And that's just part of the risk of doing these things to begin with. But the goal is to be able to submit to things like South by Southwest, um, Tribeca, the Pasadena International Film Festival. um, Yeah. those, Those sorts of things for the, the next season, which would be for next year. So, and I'm comfortable being under that pressure because once again, this pressure is not much compared to we're losing $3 million a minute. Fix this. So, right, 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 right. You know, maybe it's just my natural arrogance and I do have that, but I'm okay with going like, this is our goal. We're going to do this because that's how I learn. That's how I get better. And that's how I succeed. There isn't a project that I haven't done and Dark Spectre 2 was a cluster of problem after problem. That was almost a three year post production process, even though putting together the shoot took two months. Not even right, that. Right, right. Well, I'm not surprised. You had a lot of impressive visual effects in that one, so I can I can imagine it taking a long time to get We done. went through five VFX houses and we had many disasters along the way because ultimately we didn't have a real budget for it until finally the director got disgusted. But like originally, um, and part of the reason we even decided to do Dark Spectre 2 is Art was going to do the VFX again. But Art, who had like some wonderful effects planned, and we had a 3D artist who did all this wonderful pre-production work a year in, and we were waiting for Art, waiting for Art. He was working a 15-hour-a-day job and had a kid. He couldn't do it. Oh, wow. So a year after we shot, we had nothing. Wow. Then we began advertising for VFX houses. The first group, of, the first team. Well, that, well, Bruce, I'm going to stop you right now. It's because it sounds like it's a really long story. That it's we're a really long story. <laughs> we're, we're trying to end this podcast for about 12 minutes now. So <laughs> I told you I, I could we, do I that. Think, I think we got to wrap it up. Um, so, so Bruce, where can we find your work? Well, you can find my work. Um, if you look, look for me on YouTube, you can find my work. Um, we're redesigning my personal website and there'll be links there. Uh, the Dark Spectre website is also being redesigned. You can find me on Facebook, uh, find me on Twitter. And if you're interested in my dogs, you can find me at big guy, small dog on Instagram. Oh, nice. Fun. 
and uh, yeah, Jeff, any last words since you haven't really said anything in a while, or are you good? Oh, oh, I can talk now. Oh, thanks. Uh, okay, you know what? No, you know what? We're, I'm, I'm, I'm good. But hey, it's always, it's always good to meet another actor filmmaker who is pulling out all the stops, holding no bars, getting it done. I appreciate you. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we can work together. I appreciate you. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it is really a beautiful, beautiful to just, man to just make your own work happen and, and will it into existence, you know? And, uh, yep. yeah, man. So congratulations. And also if they're like to filmmakers out there or actors out there, if you're thinking like, okay, I want to try this, but I don't know if I'm going to succeed or if I'm going to fail by all means, do it. Fail, fail often, fail oh, hard. Yeah. Don't Absolutely. be afraid Hell to yeah. fail. The best Hell thing yeah. you can do is fail, like because people see this as a zero sum game, and it's not. Everything you learn moves you forward. Everything that you manage to accomplish is moving moves you forward. There isn't a thing that you see me do that I knew how to do before I tried to do it. And is that stupid? Absolutely. But did it work? Absolutely. Did I learn a lot? Absolutely. Can you trust me with lots of things that I may or may not be ready for? Absolutely. All because I'm not afraid to move forward and fail. And so do that. If there's something you wanted to do and you haven't done it, do it anyway. If you're afraid you're going to lose out, don't worry about it. Will it turn out the way you think it is? No. Under no circumstance will it ever turn out the way you absolutely envision it at these stages because that's not how filmmaking works. Filmmaking is what happens when you're correcting your mistakes. The brilliance comes out of how you save things, not... Like if they don't go wrong, it's not being stopped by them going wrong. Yeah. Uh, and to quote one of my favorite podcasts, just shoot it guys <laughs> in the face. Just shoot it right in the, f- what are we talking about? Uh, yeah. Film. A film. Oh <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, thanks everyone for listening. And thanks again to Bruce for being on the show. Thank you guys. You check out our website. Oh yes. Well, you're welcome. No one ever thanks me. Um. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much just for being you. Yeah, Jeff. Hey, thanks, thanks, Jeff. Oh, God, thanked you plenty of times. Yeah, you maybe maybe you've thanked me. I guess that's true. But guests don't usually thank me. Guests are just like, you know, hey, I'm a guest. Oh, on wait, principle, now I'm, I'm not thanking him. N- now I'm throwing shade he's, on he's, guests. He's, I'm he's, sorry. He's like he's passive aggressively <laughs> going. Please, just 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 acknowledge me. Just just one moment. I can't no. even pronounce your name, <laughs> so I feel embarrassed. So that's why I can't thank you. Um, you can check out our website at makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send us. An email to podcast at making movies is hard.com, or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at MMIH Podcast. I'm Ulrich B on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And Jeff, you are I am at L Jeffrey Moore on Twitter, L Jeffrey dot Moore Instagram. And you can always find me on my website at www.ljeffreymore.com. And if this is still May when this episode comes out, which it might be, um, please leave a review for us on iTunes um, because we're in this competition with the Just Shoot It podcast. Um, the uh, oh gosh, I gotta remember the other names. Uh, Light the fuse, and the last one is oh god, oh man, I gotta look it up before I get in trouble. It is called. Respect the process by Jordan Brady. So those are the those are the three uh, four, three podcasts we're in this competition with. So it's basically who, first to twenty five new reviews in May is the winner. So respect the process, 
light the fuse, just shoot it. Making movies is hard. Um, you know, if you like our show, write a review for our show. If you don't like our show, write, write a review for, for those shows. Or if you don't, yeah, if you don't like it, you can give, I, well, I don't really want you to leave bad reviews, but you know, I mean, yeah. You just can leave help us a out. great review. Leave a great and, review. Making and I, movies as hard as a kick-ass podcast. Thanks, you know. thanks, Jeff. And I mean, You're I will welcome. say that we do have the lead in reviews and ratings across all these podcasts. Um, the just shoot it guys are catching up really fast. So if you want to keep us in the lead, you better leave us a review. Anyways, um, we also have a Patreon page. You can check that out. Um, I am not doing as many bonuses as I thought I would, uh, but yes, it's been tough. Uh, but thank you to all the patrons, patrons we have, and. Yeah, you know, thanks again to Bruce and Jeff for a great show. And see you guys next week.